Hello, welcome, and thanks for listening to the first Cambridge American History Seminar podcast. This is the first in what we're hoping will become a series of brief conversations with academics who come to present at our weekly seminar. We hope that you find it useful. I'm Lewis DeFreitz, I'm a PhD student at Sydney Sussex College here in Cambridge, and I'm delighted to be joined today by Dr Alex Goodall, a senior lecturer in international history at the University College London. Alex's work focuses on late 19th and 20th century American history, with a particular focus on the growing influence of the United States overseas in the period. His first book, Loyalty and Liberty, American Counter-Subversion from World War I to the McCarthy Era, was published by the University of Illinois Press in 2013. And just last year, he published a co-written book with Michael Patrick Cullinane, entitled The Open Door Era, United States Foreign Policy in the 20th Century, through Edinburgh University Press. That book is out now on paperback. Alex, thanks for joining me. Thanks, Lewis. Thanks for inviting me. No problem. So we're going to talk a little bit about your paper today, a little bit more about your wider research, and maybe a bit more about your broader experiences as a historian. So your paper today is titled Soot, Palm Trees and Zinc, Modernisation, Sensation and Hybridity in the American Tropical Port System During the First Age of Globalisation. Could you tell me a little bit more about this? Yes, it's a bit of a mouthful, isn't it? I mean, what I'm basically doing in this paper is looking at the experiences of white US travellers who visited the Caribbean, Central America and the, the north coast of, of South America, what used to be called the Spanish Main, in the late 19th and early 20th century, and in particular looking at their reactions to the sights, sounds, smells and, and people um, of the ports in that town, in that region. Um, yeah, so that's basically what it is. I'm kind of interested in the ways in which their reactions kind of both uh, s connect with a growing sense of uh, racial and imperial mission in the United States at this time, um, but also the ways in which they try and make sense of the changes that are taking place in that region as a result of economic development and globalisation. Right, okay, great. And uh, so how does this paper that you're giving today, how does that fit into your current work, whether it's part of a bigger project or just broadly your, um, your past work and your research interests? Uh, well, this is a strand of, um, of a sort of broader interest I have in looking at um, the sort of the expansion of US uh, overseas power in this period, sort of from the bottom up. Um, so obviously traditionally these kind of accounts focus very much on, on kind of elite activity and elite decision making um, and then over time people became more interested in looking at the kind of popular culture in the United States that informed and influenced the drive to expand overseas um, and there's been a kind of growth in the last 10 years or so maybe a bit longer of people who are kind of interested in actually what's going on on the ground in these territories uh, both in terms of places that have been formerly occupied by the United States and, and what I'm looking at kind of before that period where people are just passing through and trying to make sense of those spaces. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of, this is looking specifically at one kind of group and their reactions, but hopefully um, there's going to be opportunities to, for me to sort of consider a whole array of other um, actors operating in this sort of complex space where the United States as a state is beginning to kind of make its force felt. Mm. Um, and hopefully I'm going to have the opportunity to sort of bring in actors who are not just white US uh, elites, but also 
local people and local elites who yeah. also are part of the same kind of interactions right. and their responses to these interactions. Exactly. And presence. Great. So would you say that what makes your approach in this topic unique is that you're building on the work that people have done later on in the period and applying it to the period before American well, I, I don't know if I would say my, I wouldn't claim uniqueness. Oh, I think we're all yeah. sort of um, yeah. <laughs> working on a shared project. Sure. But uh, I think, as a kind of as a the, as a group of scholars, I think there is a sort of general influence in trying to unpick these uh, transnational connections mm. that give a kind of richer and deeper understanding of the ways in which U.S. power operates. Yeah. That's not just about um, you know doctrines and armies and so on even though it does connect to that stuff yeah i think the other thing that that i'm sort of influenced by in the approach i'm taking is the sort of general shifts within the field of u.s and the world of u.s international history and particularly kind of trying to look at the ways in which um the senses emotions um conceptions of uh, space and place yeah. uh, and those kind of things start to uh, sort of shape the way in which uh, citizens of the United States are sort of coming up with ideas of the world and their place within it. Right, and how they think of themselves as Americans within that world. Yes, world. exactly. Right. And what, what causes you, for instance, in this particular case, if you see evidence of um, social disruption in a port town in, say, Jamaica or Haiti, mm. what causes you to react differently to that than you do if you see... Um, the same kinds of problems in a city in the United States or even a city like London. Right. Um, at this particular point, there's a growing sort of sense of Anglo-Saxonism that's mm -hmm. causing Americans to look across to Europe to see similar social problems as guidance and yeah. to respond to them. Whereas the reaction when they travel to uh, the Caribbean and Central America is very, very much the opposite. It's about distinguishing uh, these people from the United States and marking them out as different. Right, okay. It's fascinating. Right. Thanks. <laughs> so if we move if we move outwards a little bit. Um speaking more generally, who were your who or what were your main influences in formulating how you think about history and your historical approach? Oh well that's a that's quite a question. Yeah. I mean I um I'm not really a, a fan of a of a kind of view of history as disciples and guides and so mm. on. I don't think that's most of the time really how it works and how it produces the most uh, fruitful insights. I mean, I was here as an undergraduate right. um, and a graduate as well at Cambridge. And I was very lucky to be taught by a number of uh, brilliant scholars, um, Stephen Tuck, Raj Chandavarkar, Orlando Fijis, my PhD supervisor, Tony Badger. Yeah. And I think they all influenced me in, in a sort of general sense of the importance of rigorous scholarship, but also that thinking of history as a, as a literary pursuit, that it's important to kind of um, maintain a focus on clarity and persuasiveness as well as kind of research. Yeah. So that was obviously a very influential formative stage, but I think I've probably learned as much from peer groups yeah. over the years as I have from individuals. Sure. I mean, I had... Um, I was sort of pressed forward in many really helpful ways by the sort of fantastic fellow students I had when I was here. Mm. And similarly, when I went on to teach at York and now at UCL, mm. I've just got a lot of really uh, talented, interesting colleagues who often uh, mm. can point me in the direction of things that I might be interested in but don't know too much about. Right. 
Yeah, UCL. I don't want to give too much of a shout out to another university, but UCL seems like there's a real fantastic community of overlapping interests, but also. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we um, we have a kind of great history department with a whole range of different scholars from different periods, and it's got a tremendous suite. But we've got a double advantage that we also have the Institute of the Americas, um, which is quite unusual in terms of uh, British academia in as much as it's an institution that focuses on the, the whole of the hemisphere mm. and so it brings together scholars who work on uh, the United States, Canada, Mexico but also uh, South America too and looks at the interactions between them and that was actually one of the things that really attracted me to UCL when I first sort of mm. went there um, is trying to sort of break down some of these boundaries between North and South and thinking about these interactions in ways that uh, stress and highlight the similarities of these different republics as as well as their differences. Mm. And that's the old challenge of the challenge in American exceptionalism. Mm. Thing. And that's Absolutely. Kind of an interesting way to do it. So are there any books or articles that you've read in the last 12 months that have really uh, yeah, got you excited or made you rethink? Um, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> I think probably the things I've had the most strong emotional reactions to are probably not, not history books. Mm. I, I, I like to read a lot of fiction in my spare time, so I I read recently. I um, I read *The Remains of the Day* very recently, which I thought was a real brilliant Fabergé egg of a novel, and um, Daniel Deronda. I think one of the things about reading really good fiction is it kind of highlights how far historians still have to go in terms of capturing some of the subtleties mm. of of human behaviour. We have a particular insight, um, but we can sort of miss out a huge amount. So I think it's always really helpful to um, to keep reading. You know, fiction as well as, as non-fiction um, in the field. I mean, I think probably one of the books that sort of inspired this project is, I now I won't remember the title exactly, but um, Brooke Blower's book called Becoming Americans in Paris, yeah. which is um, very much attempting to look at the, the kind of situation of American um, citizens in, in Paris in the 1920s and the kind of spaces that they go to, the different parts and different quarters that they live in, and the way that those kind of matters of urban space condition their experience of Paris, but also start to reshape the city of Paris as well, and this sort of dynamic interaction between the two. And that's, that's kind of the model that I'm interested in with, with this project, mm. is sort of looking at the ways in which the specific situate sites of, of poor towns yeah. Um, produce a certain kind of set of conditions that Americans respond to and then in turn start reshaping. Great. Right, yeah, that's, re that's really interesting as well. And the idea of using like, a, a, a book about a completely different topic and a different time, not necessarily as a model, but as something, as a point of reference in that way, I find can be really useful. Yeah, I mean, I think it's not that far away. It's it, what, what connects the two stories is that it's part of a sort of general account of the expansion of US power mm. around the world and transnational actors, for want of a better word. And, and, um, and so in that sense, the, the kind of similarities, even though the, the, the context is, is different, the similarities in the kind of mode of analysis is quite strong. Right, okay. Um, yeah. So moving on, got a couple of light ones just to finish. Um, What's the most interesting place you've ever been for research? Uh, well, it depends how you define interesting. The first one of the first places I went to was Detroit uh, for my first project, which was on US domestic history and counter subversion. And it's always, I think, it's always great to go to 
um, places that are not sort of on the tourist trail. So you see a very different part of the country. But for this particular project, I did spend quite a while in Nicaragua, which was fascinating. And um, a lot of a lot of this um, uh, of this this work is sort of not very explicitly, but implicitly informed by me thinking about what it what it's like to travel through. Uh, the region and different ways that you could travel through it as a mm. as a tourist or not and going to Nicaragua as a historian was a really interesting experience because it produces a diff completely different kind of interaction with with the society than you, you do as a tourist right, yeah I mean I um I spent time previously in in DC looking through the records of the um US the United States occupied Nicaragua in the in the 1920s um, and fought a long-standing counterinsurgency, mm. and um, as part of that, they wrote a long report, which was a bit like a, a directory, a phone directory. It said each town, and it named the sort of most important figures in that town, right. and explained whether they were loyalists and pro-US or anti-US, and whether you know things like whether they were drunkards and yeah. these kind of like <laughs> yeah. information that was supposed to be helpful for the soldiers uh, who were rolling in to sort of know about it, but. Because Nicaragua is a country with very large kinship networks and, and comparatively low um, regional mobility, mm. now, sort of three, four generations later, you can still find the same families in the same towns. Right. So you can actually go to a town in the north and say, well, I'm looking for the Chamorros. Yeah. And, um, and they can say, oh, well, they run the hotel down the road. And you can kind of go and meet people. who You may not get very detailed kind of historical material that you can actually use in your research, but it gives you a kind of sense of the texture of the place that you just can't really get otherwise. Mm. And is, as I say, a completely different kind of way of engaging than sort of going on a tourist trail or something yeah. like that. So, uh, so that was really fascinating. Great. Well, yeah. moving on to the last question, I mean, you've spoken about interest in uh, fiction already. I suppose on that similar note, what's your favorite album of all time? <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know if I have a favourite album, okay. um, and I think probably I'm, um, I'm now of, of the age where most of the time I can't even remember what I'm listening to. Right, okay, Spotify, yeah. Spotify has, has kind of um, taken control of my decision-making process, so yeah. I sort of listen to what it tells me. It's all algorithms. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> but you know, I, um, I've been listening to a lot of Talking Heads recently, mm -hmm. if that makes any sense. Yes. Probably something that's popped up quite a lot. Um, but yeah, it's a funny thing. I don't really feel like I'm in control of my music playlist yeah. anymore. <laughs> exactly the same. Yeah. Well, that should probably do it for today. Thanks very much for joining me. Thanks. Thanks for inviting me, though. Great, and we look forward to the seminar later on. Thank season. you very much. Great. Thank you.